Ross Young, how you doing? Good, Becca. The Offspring. How's it going, Becca? Dave Grohl, how you going, mate? Good, man. Pete, it's been a long time coming. Oh, Becca, hasn't it indeed? We go inside the dressing room, speak to the biggest names in music. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. And crack open their esky. This is exactly how I imagined you, by the way, sitting opposite me with a vodka and orange. You're a discerning chap. This is The Rider. And welcome back to The Rider. Hey, this is Becco. Season 2 kicked off with a bang, as it did with Season 1. Tim Farris from NXS telling all those stories we've never heard before. One of the biggest bands in the world coming out of Sydney, going right to the beginning when they're playing in garages in Forestville and then taking on the world and then the career of NXS tragically cut short. And there were so many stories I'd never, ever heard before, like Tim talking about how he dealt with the loss of Michael Hutchins, and some of the weird coincidences that happened uh, you know, many years later when they replaced him with Terence Trent Darby, and then, of course, many years later with Tim not able to play guitar after an accident on a fishing boat, and he opens up about that as well. Tim Farris, you can catch up that on all platforms, including Apple and Spotify, but this week, legendary rock photographer Tony Mott. One of my most famous photographs is Johnny Rotten with a halo, and it's got this halo, and he had a fluoro uh, light around his head. And everyone knows that photograph and thinks I'm some sort of genius because it looks brilliant. And I've what seen it, it's amazing, yes. What people don't know is that was the fifth attempt because <laughs> I fucked up the first time. Now, I've interviewed Tony Mott so many times. He's a man of many stories. It's not just those photos he's taken over the years, but it's the stories behind the photos. He was there for Queen when they bowed out in Nebworth, and then... The after party that happened in a mansion nearby. He talks about going on tour with the Rolling Stones and doing those portraits backstage at Big Day Out and also being there right in the beginning of the career of the Divinals, playing small pubs in King's Cross and then taking on the world after that. There are really going to be some great stories coming out of this. Tony Mott, rock photographer, coming in on Zoom, and there he is. G'day, Tony. How are you? Not too bad. I've had COVID. Oh, mate. So, um... I was a bit rough for a couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, generally, generally not too bad. I've just been working on a TV series called uh, Bali 2002 about the Bali bombing, and I'm about to go to Kashmir in about two weeks' time, which is pretty exciting. Isn't it great to be able to travel again? Because I know oh, you yeah. were always travelling for the job. Yeah. and, and yeah, no, I missed that. I noticed you, you actually went out and you were doing a bit of photography for the APRA Awards um, you know, a couple of weeks did, ago. Yeah. And it's good to see you back, sort of back there doing that because it's been a uh, while. Do you know, I've, um, I worked it, I'm probably the longest serving APRA person. I've been doing it for 24 years. I'm not quite sure why. And I love the APRA Awards. Um, I'm not into slagging the ARI Awards, but the ARI Awards are very, um, I don't know what the word is, wanky. People have agendas. Whereas the APRA Awards is more about songwriting and music, and it's quite joyous, and it's a good room. It, it is, and... I went to my first one last year, and I, I realised that that it was um, just a genuine old school award show where it was almost like the old Aria Hall of Fame. The Arias went down a very strange track, um, um, and that one they did at the Opera House was getting to port- where it became Channel Ten personalities became more important than musicians. There's some model didn't even know who K- Casey Chambers was, and it seemed really weird that you've got presenters who are Channel 10 personnel. There's nothing wrong with not knowing who Casey Chambers is, yeah. but you're at music awards. I, uh, you know what's funny? That that night, um, it was probably one of the better ones to go to, but on TV, it was terrible. To be fair, I haven't been to the I Awards for so long now. I, I shouldn't really comment because I've, I've no idea what it's like. But the APRA Awards are considered... APRA years have... APRA do have good years and bad years. Um, 
because the five um, songs of the year, they usually get other artists to perform them and, and they often go wacky so that they'll get, you know, you know, a heavy metal band will do a, a Paul Kelly song. Things like that. And it's and when it works, it's great. And sometimes it can be a bit iffy. Well, my all, all-time favourite was uh, Jimmy Barnes doing Sia, which yeah, was, yeah, 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 like five or six years ago, but his voice just nailed it. Sometimes it just works, yeah. No, it's great. So, yeah, yeah. So, let's good. go back to the, the beginning of Tony Mott now. So before you were, you were doing professional photography, you were a chef. Is that right? That's right, a French chef. And where was, was that? Was that in Sydney or was that, was that back overseas? Sydney, yeah, no, it was in Sydney. I, I worked at the Opera House for a while. I worked at the Gazebo Hotel in, in King's Cross and various restaurants. Um, and I was lucky, uh, particularly as a rock and roll photographer, because this is the 80s. And uh, Sydney was, uh, or Australia in general, was the best live music scene uh, in the world. And I was sort of qualified to say that because I was from England and I'd been to America. Uh, England was going through a really bad patch live music-wise. And Australia, every every pub, every single pub had bands in it. Uh, the Cure toured uh, Sydney in 1981, and they played Sydney for three months, and they never played the same suburb twice. Wow. That's and that's crazy. how great it was. It was just uh, – and I remember I, I did some work with The Cure, and I remember just talk, did a photo session. We are just talking – and Robert Smith was a little bit demoralized in so much as, oh, we've come on a pub tour. And of course, he's English, so he's going pub tour and he's expecting, you know, to play in the little corner of some little bar because he's English. And their first gig was Selena's, 1,600 people sold out. And at that particular time, it was the biggest gig they'd ever done. And he went, who the fuck calls these pubs? They're just like these massive. And of course, every, you know, the Coman Cutter, I mean, Sydney's geographical um, pubs were just amazing. You could just go, and you got to, I know although there's nothing wrong with what happened because um, they brought in random breath testing just after that. But prior to that, people used to just go, uh, would think nothing of going on the other side of Sydney to go and see a band. There was the Royal Antler at Narrabeen and there was the Sylvania Hotel, Caring Bar, and the Coman Cutter at Blacktown, the family in the Rydalmere. So miles apart, and yeah, they all held somewhere between 800 and 1,500 people, a good gig. And they were great gigs. I saw Deep Purple at um, the Coleman Cutter at Blacktown. And I remember hearing about Iron Maiden playing, I think it was the Capitol Theatre when they first came to Sydney as well. I mean, I couldn't imagine uh, Iron Maiden performing one of the, the theatres, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So that's, well, well, in, that, in that time, in the early 80s, the big gig was the Horton Pavilion. There yeah. wasn't anything bigger. That was the, the, the high. And everyone used to complain when bands played those and said, oh, it's just so so cavernous and so huge. It's got no soul, the whole bit. Now, where's now, you know. And, and of course, when you go out to the – and you've got to remember, no such thing as stadiums. There was no stadium concerts. They just didn't exist. I think um, in the – I think David Bowie and Fleetwood Mac played the Sydney showgrounds as one-offs, but stadium tours just didn't exist. Uh, and uh, the big, the big, uh, the entertainment centre didn't exist. The entertainment centre, I think, was built in the mid '80s, and that became the uh, twelve thousand seater. And so the Horden Pavilion became, yeah, yeah, like, um, yeah, that was the the biggest gig there was. And you're right. I, mean, I remember sort of Fleetwood Mac um, and ABBA as well was another one. Uh, yeah. David Bowie, they, they played that um, the, the showgrounds, and, and that was it. You, you're totally right. I think I think Led Zeppelin did it as well, but they were all. You're right. One off shows. Played the Ramwick Racecourse. Oh, it was Ramwick. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Ramwick Racecourse and the stage 
uh, if you look at the photos, Philip Morris, who's a great Australian uh, legend of a photographer, um, he, he worked with them. And uh, you look at the stage, and it's just like a bit of scaffolding. <laughs> it's yeah, there's just nothing, nothing to it. Yeah, you're right. Nothing, nothing to it. And they played in, in, in daytime. It's like, yeah, Led Zeppelin during the, the day, that's sort of weird in itself. And, and the support bands were bands like Free and uh, I can't remember the other support bands, but it was, it was a hell of a bill. Hell of a bill. I wish so I'd have been there. Tell me about your first um, photo you sold. Well, as I said, I was a chef. And so yeah. I, I finished work at nine at 10 o'clock. And seven nights a week, you could then go after work and go and see bands. And I did. And in those days, a, a thing in the 80s that was quite popular was residencies. So bands would play every Tuesday night for three months. Uh, I remember Mental as Anything playing at the uh, the pub in Paddington, which is Unicorn in Paddington, yeah, uh, yeah. Midnight Oil at the Civic, and the Divinals used to play the Piccadilly Hotel every Tuesday night. And I used to go down there and watch them and watch Chrissy performing. And I, I was a, an amateur photographer, and I was thinking, God, that's got to be difficult to capture that. So I started taking my camera down and uh, photographing every Tuesday night. And finally their manager, Vince Lovegrove, sort of said um, – asked to look at the photos. I was so embarrassed, I ignored him. And I didn't show him the photos. And then he'd see me every Tuesday night, and eventually, after hassling me, I took him some contact sheets, and he bought one, and it became a poster. And um, uh, he paid me 25 bucks and a bottle of vodka. That's amazing. That's amazing. Was- so, so Chrissy Amphlett, you saw her at her absolute – rawness and, and, and the prime yeah, of a, one of the great, great female artists. At, at the time, she was just a female artist, as in the Divines. I loved them. I thought they were great. Uh, now I look back over 40 years later, I look back on it, she's the greatest female performer I've ever seen. Uh, and by a proverbial mile, no one touches her. She really was that good. And we're not talking Australia. We're talking world-class performer. She was So I got lucky that that's who I, who I basically um, sort of self-taught uh, rock and roll photography, and my subject was Chrissy Ampler. I got unbelievably lucky. You did. You did. And, and it's that whole era as well. You were doing film. I mean, the thing is about film, I could imagine, it, it's not cheap, so it would have been expensive. Yeah. You, yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't machine gun like you, can't, you can now with digital, um, so you would have had to have been very selective. Yeah, it's a completely different process. Uh, of course, there's a yin and yang to everything. But uh, So you take a photograph. You're not sure you've got it on film. You then go home, you, 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 you process your film, you hang it up in chemicals, you dry it, then you get in and enlarge it, and then, you, and, then, and then that unbelievably thrilling experience of, of a tray of chemicals and a plain white sheet of paper and in the, with a red light on and slowly but surely as you're, as you're agitating the chemicals, this image comes up. You're still not sure if you're in focus or not because you can't see in the dark, but you go, oh, wow. And then, of course, there's the, the, the oh, God, it's not quite sharp. Uh, but then there's also the thrill of, wow, bloody hell, that's fantastic. Uh, and the return uh, on those concerts was if, if you shot 100 frames, if you got 10 great ones, that's a bloody good night. Uh, and, or 10 acceptable ones on a good night. And of the 10 acceptable ones, if there's one great or two greats in there, that's a great night. Um, so now the clock goes forward to 2007, and I was dragged into the digital digital age, kicking and screaming. I just kept film, 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 film. And I was on the road with Rihanna, and uh, Nikon gave me a digital camera and said, no, no, you've got to, tr- got to try it. And I said, oh, I don't want it. But they gave it to me, and I thought – well, I was on the road with her, so I was doing lots of concerts, and I had already nailed what she needed. So I, everything we were getting then was bonus. I thought, well, I'll try it out, this digital camera. And 
I was blown away. Um, that first night, I was so thrilled. The digital was so easy. And as you said, film costs just disappear. Yeah. You can, yeah. Do, you can click and just do whatever you like. You can bracket. You can do whatever you like. Uh, and when I looked what I got back, I went, oh, my God. And, of course, I was really thrilled. Around the same time, within months of that, I shot Judas Priest and Kiss. And I remember shooting Kiss. And it was just so easy, so easy with this digital camera. But I also got a sense of cheating. It's yes, like, yeah. it, it's sort of like a sense of that's too easy. Uh, and as I looked down the pit and there's all these photographers with their, I was just thinking, it's all easy for them as well. And all of a sudden, the art of rock and roll photography got dis, not, not dis, it just got, um, it just got diluted slightly. It was much easier. Uh, in the days of film, there was a huge skill set involved. Of understanding. Remember, you, you've got no idea about the lighting, so you are judging your exposure. Whereas digital, you just look on the back of the camera, oh, I fuck that up, and you just change the setting. So you're constantly correcting yourself, and it's dead easy, which is fantastic. I'm not. I don't want to sound like I'm knocking digital. It's fantastic. But in the days of film, um, one of my most famous photographs is Johnny Rotten with a halo, and it's got this halo, and he had a fluoro uh, light around his head, and it gave off so much light, it was so difficult to work out the exposure. And I and everyone knows that photograph and thinks I'm some sort of genius because it looks brilliant. And I've what seen it; it's amazing. Know, yes. <laughs> what people don't know is that was the fifth attempt because <laughs> I fucked up the first time, and I was so God, this looks such a great image. I've got to get it right, and I couldn't get the exposure right because it was giving off so much light. But I also wanted the light on his face. And finally, on it was it was literally I remember exactly when it was. It was Christmas Eve um, at um, Christmas Eve down in Cronulla. And I went down and I got the exposure right. But it took me three attempts, I think, to get it. Um, and not to mention the other thing in those days, of course, was there's no such thing as a pit. So you were in the you were in the crowd pogoing with the punks whilst trying to photograph Johnny Rotten. Um, so it wasn't easy. So, of course, the thrill was huge. Um, of get, uh, but as I said, the skill set of that was quite huge. You had to know what you were doing. Whereas now digital, I, I think I could shoot drunk as a skunk and I'd get results now. Whereas I, I tried that once on film, and I remember coming out of a David Bowie concert thinking I was a genius, and I got loads of shots. And everything was everything was out of focus, a bit blurry, <laughs> not very well exposed. And I realised then maybe the drinking has to be after the concert. Yeah, yeah, and and I noticed by the way after uh, two years of COVID, um, I somehow had lost the steady hand, and, and that's a sort of a thing as well. Like when you're out of practice, yeah. I I really had to to get sort of back back in practice and uh, the, the steady hand, the focus was really difficult. I don't know what it was, but uh, you, you just got to keep doing the muscle memory. And and, and, um, and it's funny how you start to actually predict where the band are going to be standing. You, you sort of, you, you do, when you know a band well, you know where yeah, they're going to yeah. be. Yeah, when you, often at some point in the early 2000s when bands hired me for live concerts, I used to suggest to them that the first night I won't charge you. And I will shoot it, but I'm not shooting it professionally because you're learning the tricks of what's going on on the stage. And then you can have a word with the tour manager and say, well, you know that fourth song and all this thing goes on there, it would be a really great angle if I was over in point A, point B. And you just learn things. Um, I, I mean, my biggest thing was touring with the Rolling Stones, which I've done on um, two occasions and once with Mick Jagger solo. You learn their mannerisms, you learn their movements. Um, and, and, you know, by the time you're on the third night, you've worked out, this is his mannerism, and this is what he does, uh, and in particular songs. Uh, I mean, uh, Gimme Shelter um, for the Rolling Stones is great for Keith 
because when he gets into the solo, he really he's really getting into it, and he grimaces, and he's bent over, and he's twisted, and he just looks great. And he did it every night, and I just knew exactly where to be uh, to get that shot. Uh, and Mick was the same. Mick, you sort of knew, you know, his strutting. There were certain mannerisms when he's strutting you knew how to capture. Um, he's a big pointer. Now, point. staying on the Stones, tell me the story about when you were doing a portrait um, of Mick, and this is um, probably back at the hotel after the show or, or whatever, and he got a phone call from his mum. He did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he did. Uh, uh, um, was that 95? I think that was 95. Uh, in 95, when he came, he hired a genealogist to look up his family because a lot of people don't know that Mick's family is um, – Mick's mom was a fourth-generation Australian, uh, which at the time was the most you could be for an immigrant. And she left uh, Sydney in 1939 and went to London and met Mick's dad. So, and she lived on the Parramatta Road at Petersham. So anyway, he hired a genealogist, so he was doing lots of uh, – uh, and he met a load of – he had a luncheon where he met loads of family members. Uh, they're the Wollstonecrafts, and it's got nothing to do with the uh, suburb. Uh, yeah. And loads came, and uh, he met them all. Anyway, at some point, um, as a consequence of this Australian theme, he had a dry as a bone, and we set up sort of like a studio in a, in a hotel room down at the Rocks. And the only people who were there was the makeup girl, myself, and Tony King, who was uh, Mick Jagger's personal manager. Anyway, we're doing the shoot, and it was a very simple shoot. It wasn't very difficult. We'd only been going for about, I don't know, um, two or five minutes when all of a sudden Tony King says to me, oh, there's a phone call. And Mick immediately says, oh, no, you've got to take it. And he takes it. And he sort of backs off to me. And all I hear from Mick, and you've got to remember, this is Mick Jagger that's in front of me, is going, yeah, yeah, no, I have done it. I have done it. I have. It's organised. It's going to happen. No, no, no. And he's obviously getting told off. And I'm thinking, bloody hell, it's me. Who's it? And I turned to Tony King and I said, who the hell's telling me? Oh, it's his mum. He's organising <laughs> this luncheon for the family. She's just making sure he's done it. So there was – it sort of just made Mick – not that I ever thought Mick Jagger wasn't a human, but all of a sudden he realised he's Mick Jagger, but he can't get away with anything with his mum, as we all can't. As we all can't. And from that, you've done some massive you know, gigs, and, and some which you didn't realise were going to be so important – uh, historically, and that was uh, Queen's final gig at Nebworth. And, and I remember you saying that uh, you were there from the beginning right to the end. So you were there for, for the sound check and you saw Freddie at work to make yeah, sure yeah, it was right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So the, the sound check was uh, – he had a roadie. I, I mean, Nebworth is 240,000 people, so we're talking massive. And he got a roadie to go with a flag to the bottom of the uh, – the top of the hill to the furthest point where the audience – and he said all our light show, video, everything – and me is focused on that because if we're entertaining that git, these guys are easy. Yeah. And he had loads of vaudeville tricks. Uh, he used to split if, – if the crowd wasn't happening, he'd split the crowd. He'd go, everybody on the right go, yay. Everybody on the left go, yay. All the boys, yay. So he'd split there. He'd, about six songs in, in the middle of it, he'd be straight away and he'd, be, and he'd wave at someone in the crowd, as if he knew them. And of course everyone's going, oh my God, he knows one of us. It's just his little trick. Um, so he was an amazing performer. He, he literally had the whole crowd completely uh, in the palm of his hand. He just, of all the artists I've ever ever shot, he's the greatest frontman, without a doubt. He just, he, he just he, I mean, the fact that Queen's songs were anthemic, helped they were made for the big stadiums but my god he could work an audience remembering that the band weren't very charismatic 
great players and they just did their thing. They left it all to him. And my God, they, 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 they didn't have to worry about it. He just, yeah, phenomenal performer. What I didn't know at the time was, uh, so this is Nebworth and they did two nights there. So they played to half a million people on the weekend. And at the time, it wasn't like it was, it wasn't advertised as the last gig. It just was the last gig and they never ever played again. Um, I've often, I've asked a few people, I, I still know their tour manager, who knew at that point whether, or, or even if, and no one's ever been able to answer me. And it's not in the documentary about whether he knew he was ill at that point and whether they knew this would be the last gig. But it wasn't advertised that way at all. It was the end of a tour and they did two nights at Nebworth and they never played again. So I shot Queen's last ever concert. They gave me a helicopter for the day, which um, <laughs> I, 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 at the time I'd never been in a helicopter. And um, I remember being backstage and over the backstage, over the tunnel, they said, could Tony Mott come to the uh, publicity tent? And I went there and they said, oh, your, your pilot's getting a bit, you haven't been up yet. And I went thinking, do I have to pay? I mean, I, what's go anyway, I went in and anyway, the pilot's there and he goes, are you the Aussie guy? And I said, yeah. And he's going, oh, thank God. He goes, God, I've had some wankers in this bloody helicopter. Some of them don't even know to shoot 125th of a second. I went, really? <laughs> I There's this camera shake in a, a helicopter that you're not aware of. Um, and I wouldn't have known, so I would have probably shot it um, uh, too, too low. So he put me up in the helicopter, and when you went up in the helicopter and saw the audience, you just went, you then know what 240,000 people is. Um, uh, not that I'm criticizing anybody, but uh, whenever they go on about crowded house at the upper house, and the figures go up and up, there's no way there's 100,000 people on the, on the, you just can't fit 100,000 people in that space. Oh. I've seen 240,000 people in a field. Uh, there's no way that uh, that crowd, if there was 50,000 people, that's a hell of a lot on the Opera House steps. Um, uh, yeah. So, so I always, every time they come up with the Opera House and they go, yeah, I hear figures all the time. It's like, but when you see 240,000 people, you go, bloody hell. Well, it creates its own weather system as well. There's so many people, you know. Well, well, there was, there was, a, there was a, a time delay when uh, Queen did Radio Gaga and they do Radio Gaga, Radio Gaga. And they're doing that. When you're on stage shooting it, the back is slightly out of time to the front because the delay is that far. Wow. There's a delay in it. It looks – and there's no way you wouldn't get goosebumps from seeing them when they, they – he had everyone in the field doing Radio Gaga. Now tell us about the after party. That, that, that was another big story. <laughs> the after party, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I was very new to the industry. I, I, I wasn't – to this day, I'm not quite sure how I got the gig, but I knew a girl at EMI in London, and I got hired to shoot it. And then at some point during it, she said, oh, do you want to come to the party afterwards? And of course I did. And she said, there's no way you can bring your cameras. Um, here's a ticket. But is it, is it the Kensington, um, Kensington Gardens Hotel, really posh hotel. Anyway, I, I, I dump all my gear at the hotel and I go to the, ho to the hotel where the party is. You went in the lift and the lift you were greeted by two models, one male, one female, start naked, serving you champagne. So you're in a lift with a champagne with two naked. It's like I could have gone happily gone up and down the lift all night. So you get up into the ballroom. And when you enter the ballroom, uh, I think I was drinking Sauvignon Blanc in those days. And I remember going to the bar and saying Sauvignon Blanc. And they just gave you a bottle of 1950s French Sauvignon Blanc. The guy next to me ordered a vodka and tomato juice, bottle of Stolly, pitcher of tomato juice. There's no messing with all that. Um, the other thing about their room was I didn't know anybody. I needed one friend so I could just nudge and go, can you believe what's going on? Every second person in the room was famous. You'd see the girl who reads the news, Annie Lennox, David Bowie, page three girls, models. Everyone was famous in the room and you were wondering now. As the party progressed, it got more and more debauched. 
Uh, it's the first time I've seen two women basically having sex in public. Um, there was it was going off completely, and in the middle of it, there was dwarfs wandering around. Uh, what I thought were handing out canopies, and they had plates on the head, and they were basically having lines on the plates. There was no one going to the toilet; everyone was just leaning over, and it was purely debauch. But the the, the most bizarre thing of the whole thing was: so you're watching this room, dwarfs wandering around with drugs on their plates. There's people going off. There's Freddie holding court on stage. Every second person, the newsreaders there, the soap stars, a little bit. And when you went to the end of the ballroom, you went up some rise up steps and so you could look out on this debauched rock and roll party. But in the next room, smaller room, was Queen's family and children having what could only be described as an English afternoon tea party, drinking tea. And I know that one of Freddie's, um, I can't remember whether it was his mom or auntie, and said, wasn't Freddie wonderful on stage this afternoon? And there's nannies <laughs> with all the kids. So as you stood there, you looked one way, and it was just pure debauchery, like, oh, my God. And you look that way, English Tea Party. It was very, very bizarre. Um, that was my first ever um, huge rock and roll party. As I said, I was new to the industry. I thought, my God, welcome to rock and roll. I've never been to anything that even came remotely close to that. Uh, it was uh, Q Magazine in London did a thing on um, uh, the 10 greatest rock and roll parties, and it made it. So I felt that I felt that was quite good. I've been to one of the top ten parties ever. Okay, so that is part one of our chat with Tony Mott, but there's still plenty more to get to. And I'm going to be completely honest. It was at this point my laptop decided to switch off, and we had to go to Plan B, which was using an iPhone. Uh, the one consequence was a slight drop in quality from his feed, but there's still so much to cover off. I still had to ask him who his favourite person to photograph was, and also who was his worst. And we'll hear about the early years of the Divinals and why Chrissy Amphlett is the greatest female lead singer of all time. This is part two of Tony Mott. Yes. Is the rider. Let's go back to the big day out, by the way, because I know that, that you did so many great shots and, and you filled the book up with all those photos from um, big day out, um, you know, rock and rollers and your train spotting. And you um, also set up portrait galleries backstage. So the big day out was like an enormous, um, you know, when I look back at a career of rock and roll photography, um, I think I sort of uh, look back at, at Chrissy Ampler, uh, made a huge difference, starting with the Divinals. And then there was Tommy Emmanuel and the Beasts of Bourbon. They were my first two album covers that I did, which was a huge achievement. And then and then touring with the Rolling Stones. And then it's the Big Day Out. Now, Big Day Out was created by Ken West originally, and then with his partner, Viv Lees, in Melbourne. And uh, I knew Ken from his days at the Trade Union Club. He managed uh, I'm Talking uh, and... He had something to do with Ed Cooper. I think he may have just done the lights or something. Anyway, I knew him, and I bumped into him backstage at Reading, uh, Reading Festival in the late 80s. And he said, both of us sort of said, England, crap weather, amazing festivals established. Australia, amazing weather, where the bloody hell are the festivals? Narara really is our, our only attempt, which only did two years. And we never had this festival. So, and he wanted to come back and do a, a festival. But also, you've got to remember, and it's easy in hindsight, but the Big Day Out was alternative. None of those bands in the, in the first five years were on the, on, the, on the charts. They weren't mainstream at all. Very much like, for the want of a better word, they were called alternative. I'm not quite sure what they were alternative to, but they were alternative. And, of course, he got really lucky on the first one. that uh, He booked Nirvana on the back of Bleach. And after he booked them, in the meantime, Nevermind came out, Teen Spirit, 
and they went through the proverbial roof. Anyway, I hopped on board very early on and became the official um, Big Day Out photographer and toured every single Big Day Out there was all 24 years, uh, except the very final one when um, it was taken over by whoever took it over and I only did Sydney. But I went on everyone and the idea was I'd usually have to go to Gold Coast or Auckland, shoot all the bands and get a lot of, uh, I do a lot of sessions with the bands for pre-publicity. So I'd send the photos on to Adelaide, Perth, Sydney, and Melbourne, and I got lots of front covers of the Melbourne Age, City Morning Herald, uh, and Street Press with all the bands. And because you're on the road for three weeks, you built up a relationship with the bands. You bonded. And, um, yeah, what can I say? The Big Day Out was just phenomenal. It was just like, it was, it was the best thing ever. It was just phenomenal. And you saw it all. Like, um, you got to see uh, particularly the Silverchair era. You, you saw them as young, shy little kids. And and on on the same year you saw the the rage of Courtney Love as well, who wasn't yeah. happy with them. Uh, well, well uh, it, it would be fair to say that Courtney was a, a strange creature. Um, was she not happy with them? She was. She certainly scared Seven Bells of shit out of them. Uh, but then again, she she scared Seven Bells of shit out of most people that she met. So Silverchair had just run through. They were massive. They played the side stage to what can only be. To very close to Beatlemania. Uh, and the band were like, you know, 15, 16 years old. It was all quite overwhelming in the first place for them. And then she attacked their tour bus. She literally came up and was just screaming at them. And, you know, you know, these are 17-year-old kids, you know, because, you know, I mean, she intimidated the hell out of me, so God knows what, she, what they thought of her. But um, in her other moments, she could be as nice as, nice as pie. I, my strange, strange experience with Courtney was in um, was in Auckland uh, Ministry with the headliners, and um, I was on stage um, shooting Ministry. I had industrial strength earplugs because Ministry are bloody loud, and I'm shooting them from the side of stage, getting some shots. And I was aware of a presence coming close to me. There's no one else apart from roadies, and it was Courtney, and she plunked herself very close to me, uh, and then she was trying to talk to me, which was impossible in this noise. And then I realised she wanted me to take a photograph of her except I've got this massive lens on that's for shooting for something that's like 100 yards away, and she's next to me. So I'm trying to, you know, wrong lens, I can't shoot. Don't I? And she just got irate and started getting really pissed off, started abusing me. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see her minder, um, for the one of a better word, a bodyguard. And I'm thinking, fuck, he's going to think I, I'm... Anyway, we ended up rolling together. I'm aware that I'm very close to a 30-foot drop into the pit. I'm pretty sure she wasn't aware. Luckily, he uh, dragged her off me and dragged away with her just abusing seven bells of shit out of me. The next day, I'm doing a portrait with her in the hotel. I'm thinking, well, this is not, you know, she's just going to, she abuse her. And she just greets me in the lobby like a long-lost friend. Motte, what are we going to do? And she was just nice as pie. So the previous night, I'd just completely gone out. But she was like that for most of the tour. She was like, um, I mean, she was a nightmare. Um, but at the same time, she was Courtney. She was certainly entertaining. Um, and for Silverchair being so young, I mean, I, I've no idea what they thought. They must have just, yeah, of course they were petrified. I'd be petrified. So who was your top, say, top five uh, artists to see? I remember you you're saying previously Michael Jackson was one of them. It, it, that, that's, that's it. I mean, those sort of questions are really difficult to answer. I, I think I said, uh, I always put out as the top performers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Photographs. Uh, it was, uh, and this is not in order, but it was Prince, Michael Jackson, Freddie Mercury, the Rolling Stones, and Chrissy Ampler. Those are my five that I picked. Um, 
I, I put Freddie Mercury number one just purely for good, purely for he, he had the whole crowd. Um, I'm not into Michael Jackson's music, but God, he was a great performer. I mean, it was just pure. He was so good at what he did. It was just pure entertainment. And Prince, the same character. Prince was way more talented because Prince was just brilliant musician as well as a dancer and everything. Prince is probably the, the classic. The Rolling Stones I put there just because they are, without a doubt, still to this day, the greatest rock and roll band live uh, on their good nights. There's no one touches them. Um, I mean, the Beatles are the greatest band ever, as in recording music, and the Stones are the greatest live band ever. So touring with the Stones is in, and that's special. And Chrissy Ample, as I'd said previously, is the greatest female performer I've ever come across. Unpredictable, screaming banshee. You never knew what you were going to get. Uh, but you're always going to be entertaining. You couldn't keep your eyes open. You could put earplugs in and hear nothing and just watch Chrissy Ampler, and that's entertainment. Oh, it would have been incredible uh, to see the pub scene with, with Chrissy, uh, and, and the band were just tight as well. That's, that's something you would, have, you would have seen. Well, the great thing in that period, of course, was bands were playing 200 to 300 gigs a year regularly, uh, and you just get good at doing it. Um, it's uh, yeah, you just get good at it. Um, yeah, they were really tight. Um, that lineup, that early lineup was fantastic. Um, uh, when Rick Grossman joined the band, that made a big difference. Uh, yeah, the, and, and Mark's guitar playing. Yeah, they were a great band. Great, but I mean, yeah, it, and and it was a band. I did, as much as I've gone on for about Chrissy Ampler, the vinyls were a band. That's your your top five of performers. Uh, now, who was the worst one to photograph? The worst one. There's got to be one where they didn't play along, they didn't play the game, they were difficult. There's two that springs to mind. One would be Van Morrison, uh, <laughs> yeah. who, who the manager had already pre-warned me that, that yeah, he's not there. He opened his world tour in Perth and he walked on stage, first song or second song, picked up the mic and played the entire concert to his drummer. Uh, so just nothing out the front. And the second one was Miles Davis. And I, I never quite worked out what Miles Davis, because I think he was being funny. The, the manager again warned me he's not really into having his photograph taken. Um, but I got photos of him. But I could see him seeing me, and he'd, he'd deliberately go away from me. But he'd have a sort of grin on his face, and it almost became like a game. So it was, I never felt it malicious, and I got what I needed. Uh, and the third one, and I don't want to say again, uh, was Bob Dylan. Uh, I got hired to do Bob Dylan in 86, I think it was. And again, I was warned by his manager. He, he hates photogra- uh, being photographed. And so I had to be discreet. And so, I, and the lighting was really low, so it was very difficult. And then eventually the crowd would go down the front towards the end. And so I'd go in with the crowd. And on one particular night, I went in with the crowd. I'm getting the shots I needed. And he spotted me. Uh, and in mid-song, he told me to go forth and multiply. And I had to go forth and multiply. <laughs> I wanted to show him my laminate and say that I'm official. But I it's Bob Dylan. We won't care. He's told me to go, and I'm gone. There's, there's always an art form with, with to- photography. Sometimes is to try and get that extra shot, and uh, and some burn their bridges with the promoters, and, and some sort of get away with it. And, I, and I, I've been to plenty of gigs where, long after the three shot rule, um, you know, you've you've got someone going up to the the, the balcony at the end more and taking more photos, and I always think, oh, that's such a risk. You know, yeah, the three shot rule came in with uh, with Blondie. Um, I was wondering three- where they came from. Right. So Blondie, when they, when Blondie went through the roof and became big, she wore an enormous amount of uh, eyeliner mascara. And after four, three, four songs, it used to run. And she used to hate the photographs that were like 
with, with the running match car. So the tour manager said, yeah, we'll just let them shoot the first three songs. Slowly but surely, it became the norm. Uh, in actual fact, the first three songs is, uh, uh, obviously, uh, it's quite frustrating. But I always found that if you were working, depending on who you're working from, you saw the tour manager or the manager of the band. And the band I did it to first was Iron Maiden. And I said, look, I, I understand first three songs, but my God, I'm missing out on where the band get totally into it towards the end. And I said, I'd be happy for you to just let me do the, the, the last three songs when the band's going off and uh, it's going to be so much better. And the tour manager went, that's, yeah, you're right. That's, that's right. And he said, no, you can shoot the whole show. Uh, Queen let me shoot the whole show. First three songs. And I just said, first three songs are great, and I'm going to get ready to show But my God, Freddie, when he's in full flow, I want to get that. And they went, yep, yeah. So you, you could approach tour managers, and you could get, I mean, because the press, you know, City Morning Herald, Telegraph, whoever's there, and there's 20 photographers there, they're not going to let them all do it. So you discreetly, what, what I used to always do is say, can I do the first three songs? I'm really desperate to get, particularly when you said, oh, I don't just want the lead singer. I want the bass player, the drummer. You know, am I going to get them all? And they say, all right, well, we'll get everyone out and then you can go back in from five onwards. And as long as you and maybe one other photographer, they're fine with it. Obviously, they're not going to let everyone stay there. So I, I used to be able to bend them around. And, uh, uh, you know, th there's bands with, you know, with pyrotechnics and you go, well, you know, that's the part of the show I want to see. I don't want to see the first song. There's nothing happening. Um, so so you, you could, I, uh, there's other artists where first three songs is fine because they're not going to do anything different. So you, you're not you're not missing out, but there is bands, the metal bands and the, the hard rock bands. Of course, they peak towards the end where they they're going off. Yeah, absolutely. and you want the going off, you want the going off shot. So there there was ways around it. Uh, the the yeah, the, and, and obviously when you're working for the band directly, they're letting you shoot the whole show. And you know the Stones were very generous to me. I, I got stage access. I was on stage with them more than once because I wanted to get them with the crowd and everybody in it. So. You know, once you've got a relationship with whoever you're working with, they're going to give you more than three songs. That's that's really important. And other, other artists um, like Midnight Oil as well, they, funny enough, do three songs, but often it's like songs four, five, and six. <laughs> so for that reason yeah. you're talking about, you know. If you start getting aggressive and go, I don't want to, nothing's going to happen. But if you explain, say, hey, look, I'm really, really want to get great shots. I mean, I've seen the show. That's the highlight, not the first three songs. The first three songs, you're just introducing yourself but, you know, eventually you peak. You, you know, there's, everybody knows that. And you say, I, I, and I, particularly with the metal bands, I started saying, can I do the last three songs? Which was cheating because they'd give you the last three songs and then you get the encore. Of course. You end up getting five. Exactly so, right. So, and I always wanted to get the last three songs because that's nearly always better lit and it, it's, it's their crescendo. And, of course, they're always going to leave on a high because they want the crowd to go, oh, more, more, more. So they've gone out on a high. First three songs, it's just introduction. So, yeah, it's quite important. Yeah, so it's But like I said, it was Blondie introduced it, and then it just became the norm. Uh, and quite often, if you ever – again, like I said, you can't be aggressive with a tour manager whose job it is to, uh, to put the person in. But if you say to them – if you literally just say, um, why? And they go, what do you mean, why? I mean, it's convenient for them because three songs get rid of them. That's their – so it's easy for them. But if you say you – know, like I said, if you say – you're doing a front cover of a magazine and I don't just want the singer. I, I, Chili Peppers were, did three songs and I remember their tour manager and I just said, but they wear helmets with fire on at the encore. That's like fantastic. Yeah. It's yeah. me off and let me come in for the last three songs. And the guy goes, oh, you really want to get great? I said, I don't want to just go anti-Cadiz. It's really important to get fleet. 
I want to get them all in there. I don't want uh, three songs. I'm going to get one. And they, I got remember this is in the days of film where you didn't get as much. Review. And and they went. He said, "Well, why don't you shoot the whole show?" I went, "I'd love to shoot the whole show." Shoot the whole show. <laughs> and that night at the Horden, I went back in the pit, and he came in the pit, and he just announced to all the guys, "You can shoot the whole show." But he said, "Don't go on stage. He's the only one allowed on stage." And so he allowed. So he didn't care. He went, "Yeah, yeah, you could stay all night. I don't care. It's no skin off his nose." So so it's sort of like it became a thing after Deborah Harry did the first three songs. And within five years, the whole world was doing three songs. I made me used to do the first five songs. I think they just wanted to be different. The weirdest thing I've had was within New York, was Aerosmith used to give passes out. And depending on how important you was, which is really dreadful, you either got three, five, or seven. Oh, wow. And so all, the, all the, the laminates were all different, which is very weird because some poor sodas come and say, oh, what's your laminate? What color is that? Oh, you've got to go. It was like it was. It was that was. I, I thought that was very bizarre. And also, you're belittling someone. It's like, why would you do that to someone? Why don't you just give them all seven songs and have done? And the same so, thing's and, happening now, in a way, with um, more of the heritage acts, but they're making you shoot from front of house and not in the pit. And I never understand why they do that because you're never going to get a great photo from front of house. Yeah. It's a distant shot. You don't get any depth. It, it, it's you know, it's weird. It, if I, if I am shooting and I'm told it's the sound desk, I said, don't worry about it. And they go, what do you mean? I went, there's just no point. No. It's just no. a waste of my time. I did, I did George Michael at the um, at the Sydney, either the football stadium or, or the cricket ground, and it was the sound desk. And I turned up, I went to the sound desk and just went to the publisher and said, I'm off home. And they went, what do you mean? I went, there's just no point. That's miles away. Uh, and, and she goes, oh, he comes down the catwalk. I went, what, in the first three songs? And she goes, Sometimes <laughs> I went, yeah, just a waste of time. Yeah, and, and it yeah. was. It was, yeah, and everyone said afterwards. I remember going and just went. There's just no point. Uh, Madonna did it once um, because she was aware of her age and, and, and didn't want the close-ups. Um, but the reality is, with the big zoom lenses, they're still going to get some. Uh, yeah, again, the same thing with the, if if someone says it's the sound desk, I, I always just go, well, don't worry about it. Uh, but I do get. Michael Hutchins was quite clever. He hated the pit because their stages were so high, it was up the nose job. So mm. he used to put the photo pit slightly back, uh, and he was completely correct. It was a much better angle. The pit isn't the greatest place to be. The, the greatest place to be is probably 20 yards from the stage. It's just a really nice – so you're more or less – so you're not doing that. You're more like that which is much kinder to the photograph. So I do get that, but the sound desk is just silly. You, oh, you, yeah. Why bother letting – just don't let people in if you don't want them photographed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and there's one exception which really I think might be you too where you've got a lot of big visuals and, and you've oh, got – Oh, yeah, yeah. You I, know, I, I, but, well, in actual fact, for those shows, those stadium shows, they should do three songs in the pit and then when they've got the spectacular light show, go take your sound desk and get you so you've got both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the one thing that the bands have to remember is you're trying to get coverage. You're letting photographers in because you're trying to get coverage. So uh, sound desk, you're going to get little coverage. It's just that, that's stupid. Um, yeah. that, 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 that was coming in quite a bit. And it's like, um, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just silly. Um, yeah. And the reality is everyone's got a bloody iPhone in the front of the audience anyway. So people are shooting you from the, you know, the front anyway. So. Well, correct. Correct. So no, I hope that that trend, um, you know, dissipates because it's just so frustrating as a photographer. But now you talked about Michael Hutchins just a moment ago. Tell me about 
that famous photo you took, uh, which got picked up sadly after he passed away, but it was this incredible photo of him straddling the Harley, and it was an accident, I think, from memory. It is. So, so what happened was I did uh, an in-excess photo shoot, as in the band, and we finished. So it was in the studio. It was in a warehouse in, in Woolloomooloo. And then I don't know why. Oh, no, I do know why. We went back to the uh, management. The, uh, in-excess management had a, an office on Brown Street in King's Cross. And we went back because Michael was meeting Gary Foley, um, the Aboriginal activist. And, um, so, and so we met him there. And he had his Harley out the back. And I was out the back with him. Uh, and he was just sat astride the Harley and he was waffling on about how great he loved the Harley because uh, he put his helmet on and he's anonymous and he could ride around. It, it was at the height of, of uh, Michael Hutchins and paparazzi. So he said, you know, I've got, I put the helmet on, no one recognizes me. And he was just sat there and I think I had maybe eight frames at the end of a row of a film. Again, days of film. So I, I haven't been filmed. So it's film that's been used inside. So I've shot it outside and it's completely the wrong ASA. It's all wrong. And I've just thought, I don't know. I, I think it's about 10 frames at the end of a roll. Anyway, that was it. I shot the scene. The band used the photos. And then 20, or maybe whatever it was, 10 years later when he died, um, Rolling Stone magazine rang up and said, we want Michael Hutchins' portraits that have never been seen. Anything you've got that's never been seen. And I sort of said, everything of mine you've seen. There's no, I've got nothing. And um, put the phone down. And then I suppose I was just sitting and thinking, I was thinking, oh, there was that photo. So I'd never really looked at them. Wow. And I sort of got the, I got the negatives out, pulled them on the enlarger, and they were so grainy because they were photographed incorrectly, as in they were the indoor photos and they were just in. So they're incredibly grainy. And I blew them up and they looked quite good. They were really good. And I sent, um, I think there's only five frames that are usable. So it's not like I've got loads. There's five. And I sent him over to Rolling Stone. And the, um, I think it was, I've forgotten the name of the editor now, but she rang up and she said, who else have you shown them to? I said, no one. I, literally, these are the first time I've printed them. And she goes, don't sell to anybody else. Will you? And it ended up on the cover. So I got the cover of Rolling Stone. And it ended up on a, on a biography of his as well. Uh, and they are, and, and Michael's brother, Brett, who lives in Bali, um, bought one um, um, for himself. So it, and the really weird thing is it got into an exhibition and people were waffling on about how brilliant it was and fantastic and how I'd got the grain and the light and the whole bit, but it was a complete accident. Like, it was actually a fuck up. It wasn't, it wasn't clever at all, but people were going, Oh wow, it looks great, but it does look good. The grain in it. Uh, and of course that's what's great about um, film over, over digital is that black and white portrait grain is just fantastic. It's still the, my choice of photograph is that portrait, the black and white grain. Now, maybe you're saying that there's, a, there's an artist who you always dreamt about photographing and it's, a, it's an artist from back in England that you grew up being a huge fan of. Was it Motla Hooper? Was that who it was? Um, Motla which, yeah. which is where I get my name from. My name's not Motla. Oh, I, I name myself. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I, when I, that first Chrissy Amplet photo, the first one I sold to on the street, the, the street newspaper, um, the girl there, who's the layout girl, sort of said, oh, you and a credit. And my name's Tony Moles. And she sort of laughed and went, that's, a sh- that's not a photographer. And she goes, you have to change your name. And I went, what do you mean? She goes, you have to come up better than Tony Moles. It's just not a photography name. And I had no idea. And on the spot, she said, well, who's your favorite band? I said, oh, Mott the Hoople. She goes, well, there you go. Tony Mott or Tony Hoople. And I went with Tony Mott. Um, so uh, Mott the Hoople are my favorite all-time band I, I, 
yeah, I just love them to death. Anyway, they they split in the uh, in the mid seventies. They split at the height of they'd had hit singles and they split up. And Ian Hunter went on to a solo career. Um, anyway, they got back together in two thousand and nine. So I flew back to England and shot them, and uh, it was just awesome. It was just uh, they the review said they were gloriously shambolic, and that's what they always were, and they were. Um, but they were. They were the band that the only band Queen ever supported were Mott the Hoople. Uh, REM uh, name checked them in uh, Man on the Moon. The opening line is everyone should have a Mott the Hoople. Uh, they were on the soundtrack to Michael uh, Martin Scorsese's first ever film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, that's a Mott the Hoople soundtrack. And the opening words of that film are turn that fucking Mott the Hoople down. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, they're my friend. So I went back to London and saw them um, three nights at the Hammersmith Odeon. And at one point, um, the bass player leaned into the pit and said, maybe keep the noise down because I was singing along out of key. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, I'm so glad you got to go and, and, and photograph them after all those years. Um, well, oh, it was great. It was, I, I, got, I got six uh, student friends that I went to uh, college with and we got a hotel in London for the night and we partied and watched Bottle the Hoople and just, yeah, relived our youth. <laughs> Now, before you go, the, the podcast is called The Writer, so it's all about the backstage uh, list that, that bands have or band management have. Uh, you can tell me your favourite drink. Cause I, I know that Gin and tonic. Gin and tonic? But, Easy. Gin and tonic. Yeah. But also, at the you, Queen, the queen you after party, you must have gone through a, a, a vodka and orange uh, time as well, though, you know, uh, back in the... I did, yes, yeah, I had vodka. Uh, uh, gin and tonic is a new drink to me. Um, I've got 11-year-old twins. And when they were about two years old, I was in Melbourne one very, very hot day in a pub at lunchtime. I just wanted something refreshing. And she said, cider. And I went, ah, oh, too sickly sweet. And she said, try a gin and tonic. I went, gin and tonic? That's something, you know, colonial. And she gave me a gin and tonic. I went, bloody hell, this is really nice. And I've been drinking it ever since. <laughs> That's great. Well, Tony, once again, thanks for the chat. Uh, you're always great value. We've got, you've got all the books out. Um, I have two of them on my coffee table, and uh, it's one of those great books to come back to and inspire you, you know, because um, it really does. It really does. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to have a new book out by the end of the year. I'm theoretically, hopefully, having an exhibition in Melbourne at the end of the year. So there may be a new book. Well, I'll, I'll fly down for that because uh, it, it, it's just a very special, special time to see your photos. Uh, Tony Mott. Thank you for coming on The Rider. Cheers. No worries at all. I'm looking forward to my gin and tonic. Well, he's certainly a man of many stories. There he is, Tony Mott, rock photographer. Make sure you check out his books. Rock and Roll is the new train spotting and the A to Z of rock and roll. And his new one is coming out in the back end of the year, we hope. Next week on the podcast, well, Simple Planet back with their sixth album. We're going to catch up with Chuck, who has been the band since day one, 1999. And he'll have some stories Chuck from Simple Plan next week on The Rider with Becco. Catch you then.